0: You can be seated unless you have recently returned from Honduras. Would you stand up if you have recently returned from Honduras? Okay, stay standing, stay standing. I have already heard that we need to hear from these guys. So look around, look for someone that you are somewhat connected with, or even if you're not, I want you to go ask them, Uh, about this trip. Okay. Thank you guys. And thank you for going. This is a church that really, really values mission. Okay. And specifically foreign mission. And we haven't been able to do it for years because of COVID. And so it's just so refreshing to have had you guys travel the world uh, for the sake of Christ. And so thank you for doing that. And we praise God for what he's done in you and through you. So we've been following the life of Jesus through the book of Luke in our series entitled "This Is the Way," for weeks, oh, well, for months since since February, but for weeks now, and really months, a couple over two months, ever since back in Luke chapter nine, Jesus set his face resolutely for Jerusalem. He set it because he was going there for the main event of his kingdom bringing mission. You and I know what's coming. His followers didn't, but but he did, and we know. And we've been following him on that long road trip to Jerusalem. Following him, watching him, listening to him. And I am happy to report today after 10 long chapters, after two and a half months, we are arriving in Jerusalem. Right now, today, this is the day. Chapter 19. And so in this chapter, it begins what we call these days, Holy Week. The week of events that lead up to Jesus' resurrection. And and it's interesting because after covering three and a half years in the first 18 chapters of his book, Luke hits the brakes, he slows way down, and he's going to cover just a week in six chapters. This is the climax. We should pay attention to all of it, but now... We want to really examine what Luke is drawing our attention to. So on that Christian calendar, this day, chapter 19, it's a Sunday. Okay? It it was a Sunday back then. And this gets its own special title. It's called Palm Sunday. And the main event of this day, there's several events on this day, but the main event of this day gets its own special name. Joel's already named it for you. It's called the Triumphal Entry. And that name and... Everything in my emotions when I think of Holy Week and the Triumphal Entry, it has a distinctly positive spin to it, right? Uh, We've sung songs that they sang, a a celebration-type feel to it. It's exciting, the people singing those praises and honoring his arrival by waving those palm branches, which had some Jewish significance to them, laying out their cloaks as he rides on a donkey like a king would in peacetime into his city, the king of God entering the city of God. It's the triumphal entry. But as you're going to see, like I did when I took a hard look at chapter 19 in Luke's gospel, even though there is an undeniable and uninterrupted larger story of hope and redemption and salvation going on on this day, when you read this chapter, you're going to see that this day is a day of disappointment especially for Jesus. It's even a day of judgment and a proclamation of doom. So the reason is because here in Jerusalem, now that we're there, finally, the time has come for the ultimate clash to happen between the kingdom of God that Jesus has been preaching and that no one seems to understand. They have their own vision, their own view of what it is and whenever he tries to clear things up even his disciples kind of hide behind a cloak of what's he talking about you know and stick with their view we're going to see that that's true and it is here that the clash happens that he overtly you've heard him say many times hey my time has not yet come not anymore his time has come this is it he knows it And so we're going to go through this but I'll tell you now what we're going to finish with. What this chapter demands that you and I ask 2,000 years later is do you want this Jesus as your king? Do you want Jesus as your king or do you want Jesus to make you a king? Do you want the kingdom that he preaches that he actually brings in matter of fact and objective truth or do you want what you have gleaned from it and then put through your sifter and spit out the other end a description of a kingdom that you like better than what he says. That's the question. So we read verses 1 through 10 last week. Uh, So we're going to start in verse 11 where he says this. He says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. And he has a reason for this. Because he was near Jerusalem And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Okay, so there's a lot of context here, and part of it is what we preached last week. I won't re-preach it, but he says, while they were listening to this, while they were listening to what? Well, if you were here, you know it was the story in the town of Jericho, which is really close to Jerusalem, where the famous Zacchaeus, the wee little man, he's got his own song, he converted to Christ. Simply said, he converted to Christ. He was a chief of sinners, we covered. And yet even he qualified. And his encounter with Jesus changed him. And he repented, giving us a non-negotiable and easily seen example of the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. It is one that forgives sins. It is one that when the forgiveness of sins is received, it transforms you into and unmistakably by God's definition good being doing good things godly things Christ like things and so that's what they had just heard this, that's what they had just been talking about and Jesus finished by declaring that that's exactly the kind of kingdom he brings he says today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham and then he speaks his mission For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. So, we get into our text for today. While they were listening to this, this picture of what the kingdom looks like, yeah, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. And he gives a couple of reasons for it, because they are still thinking when he walks in as king, they're going to take over. Romans are gone and he's there. It's going to come in immediately. They've got the wrong picture of what a kingdom is. So, he's going to tell them. He says, a pretty gripping parable. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. It's a sum of money. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well, listen, well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of a hundred minas. No. Ten cities. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man and you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. Listen, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then, note, he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Can you imagine this? He's got this image of what the kingdom looks like with Zacchaeus that they've just seen he declares his mission this is what the kind of kingdom he has but he turns to Jerusalem but he's like they still think it's going to be this other thing when I walk in this whole conquest thing is going to happen we're going to set up a different kind of kingdom than I'm bringing even though I just showed him so he throws out what could be one of the one of the scariest harshest sounding parables of his life. And then he finishes that with the killing of those that don't want him as king and he just turns and goes. Can you imagine them going? Okay, you know, and just start following him. What's going on here? He's about to enter Jerusalem and so he tells them this gripping, soul-shaking parable. I think to jolt them to attention one last time to prepare them to accept the kingdom he's been preaching. To, to prepare them to accept him as he is on his terms and the kind of king that he is not what they want him to be so there's three different responses to the master in the story the first one is faithful obedience right all ten servants are given a mina my understanding is that's three months wages and they're told to invest it for when he comes back he has some more payout from that And so they do, two of them are depicted as being faithfully obedient to that master who's about to be crowned king. And they're lavishly rewarded for it. So this represents obviously followers of Jesus who are signed on and sold out to Jesus's master on his terms. Whatever he says goes, I trust. I trust him, his kingdom, his ways, and that that's even best for me, even if I don't understand it. It's not what I want. It's what he wants so that's response one response two they are also servants okay so these are ones that are presumably signed on and sold out to this master and to him as king when he comes back but it's depicted by one servant who did nothing with his mina and this is important because this guy gets rebuked he gets what he has taken from him and here's the deal he didn't do anything wrong with that money He didn't proactively do anything. He didn't go and waste it. He didn't go and spend it and then embezzle some off the top. He didn't do anything overtly evil. What was evil? And it was evil because he calls him a wicked servant. He makes no mistake. His inaction was evil in this story. It's because he didn't do anything. That's considered unfaithful disobedience. And then the third one is just outright rebellion, and it's characterized by these citizens in the story, okay? So not the servants, but just the citizens. And these citizens are just mentioned at the beginning and at the end, but they are important because most of the people in Jerusalem, when Jesus is being put before the crowd, most are going to fit here. They are literally going to soon shout, We have no king but Caesar. Interpret that in this parable is, we don't want Jesus as our king. N.T. Wright says there's just no tiptoeing around what Jesus says here in the parable. Bring them here and kill them in front of me. If you will not have Jesus as your king, Then the death that sin brought into the world, way back at the beginning story of humanity, Adam and Eve, the death that that brought, the life that it stole, the life that he has already declared, I have come to seek and save that which was lost, and what was lost, it was life. But if you will not have Jesus as your king, then that death remains. Even though he's right there in front of you, the death remains. So Jesus continues, verse 29, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, these are getting, I mean, Jericho's already really close to Jerusalem. These could almost just be suburbs of the city. And so he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one's ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some Pharisees in the crowd, they're still hanging around said to Jesus, teach rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, if even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So, obviously there's a lot here, but what I want to draw to you in the larger narrative is you can see clearly in this section that There's a difference between the emotions of the people and the emotions of Jesus. The people, the disciples, the the citizens, they've been waiting. The Jewish citizens have been waiting for this day. Since they were little kids, their parents have told them the story. And their parents have been told since they were little kids. And for generations, hundreds of years, this has been told. This day will come. And now, this day is here. So they're singing. And the things they were singing were prophecies in the Old Testament that they knew well. And they were singing those. Everything about this was consistent with the Old Testament prophetic word. And so they were understandably excited. But in contrast to that, look at Jesus' emotions. He comes into view of Jerusalem. Not him. He cries. He looks at the scene and he looks at Jerusalem where he's going. And he's not going, finally, the day of the Lord has arrived. He cries. And he tells us why. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. See, they had an idea of what would bring them peace. It was the kicking out of the Gentiles. It was the overtaking of the holy city. It was the set of the rule and reign of the kingdom of God, which would be the Jewish reign in a nation state. That's what they were about. And, and this is how even the word peace, he comes in peace. That's why he's on a donkey. But, but even that is about like Rome, when, when Greece, when Rome, when they, Alexander the Great and then the Caesars, they start conquering the world. You know what they're bringing through their military power? Peace. If you asked them, they would say, we're bringing peace. Peace comes by this dominion of the earth so that we're all unified under one culture and one mindset. That's what's going on here. But Jesus knows the kind of king he is. He knows the kind of kingdom that he brings, the kind of peace that every human heart in the world needs that has nothing to do with the outward superficial nation state or kingdom that you live in. He knows that. And so this was emotional enough for him to just cry. And he prophesies what's going to happen to Jerusalem because they don't understand. They don't don't want him as king. They don't want his sort of kingdom. They don't want this kind of peace, the kind the wee little man got, the kind that he brings. He says the days will come when your enemies will encircle you, and it will be just the way you're talking. Military might, power, power. You and your children within these earthly walls, you're going to be panicking that day because you didn't recognize this time of God's coming to you. So the contrast of kingdoms and Jesus' presence in Jerusalem is an overt assault to this false view. And it's demonstrated clearly, like the, all of his teaching about his kingdom, everything he's tried to proclaim, and then everything everyone else is thinking is now coming to a head. And it's very clearly demonstrated as he finishes this chapter here. When a, real quick, so when a king enters a city back then, Luke and Jesus both were following a very common pattern. So a king enters a city, whether it's a, his home city or it's a new home city that he's conquered. The king enters in. It's a parade, kind of like we're seeing with Jesus. He's following that pattern. If, he, if he's conquering king, comes in on a war horse with his military. If he's coming home and bringing peace, you know, a donkey comes in on a donkey. And so peace is a big theme here of this and after the king enters whether on a horse or a donkey he goes to the temple and he goes to the temple to offer a sacrifice of gratitude to God that's a common theme no matter who your God is that's what they would do the Greeks would do it the Romans would do it and that's kind of the pattern he's following here Jesus does go to the temple next and everyone's there offering sacrifices because it's Passover all he has to do is buy a you know, change his money, buy a sacrifice, and offer a sacrifice like every good Jew does at this time of year, but he doesn't. It says, then he entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his word. There's a lot more detail of this cleansing of the temple in the book of Mark, but Luke simplifies what he does and what he says, and he ends by revealing clearly what's going on in the people's leaders' hearts. They don't want this king. They're trying to kill him. This is why he was crying. Church, this is why he gave his disciples a stern talking to and orientation of what we're about to enter into through a what sounds to us like a harsh parable. They're trying to kill him either overtly, right? Either overtly and literally, or by making Jesus' kingdom something that they like, that they think they want. And They want Jesus to usher in that. What do you want? That's the question. I told you we'd finish with this. What do you want? I that's what hit me, and I've already said it. I've had to ask in this chapter do I want Jesus truly, purely, as He is, as He's presenting Himself as my King, or do I want some other picture? of Jesus that maybe is already firmly established in there and in some cases not even questioned not examined and possibly false do I want that one that really allows me to be king a couple weeks ago before uh we started in chapter 19 one of our elders Jerry Morgan he had read chapter 19 and he sent me this picture it made him think of this picture when he was over in the holy lands he said there was a uh, There was this local that had a donkey. And he was advertising as they were approaching Jerusalem. For a small fee, you can ride into Jerusalem like Jesus did on the back of a donkey. I thought that was clever. Clever tourism gimmick. And Jesus, I mean Jesus. Jerry, he's very Christ-like. But Jesus, Jerry. Jerry invited me to wander along with him. Is this our temptation too? Right? Is this our temptation too? Do we let Jesus write into our lives as king on his own terms? Or do we want to write in as king? Right? Do we want to write in as king? Here's the deal, and this is scary. You can. And if you're not conscientiously doing otherwise, you are. You are king of your life. But just like this guy in Jerusalem, there is a small fee to pay. If you decide to kill Jesus as king or to try to convert Jesus into the kind of king that you like, that works for you, that seems to make sense to you, that is your interpretation of Scripture and not Jesus' presentation in Scripture, then you can. There's a small fee to pay. And what Jesus said in that parable is it is not a small fee. It is not a small fee. It's a high price. It's not so small. So as our elders and our ministers, go ahead and move around the room to these spots just in case you need to respond to anything. That's why they do this. Let's allow Jesus to be our king. Would you do that? Would you really finish the book of Luke with me over these next weeks? Really letting him define who he is, what kind of kingdom, and let's herald him. Let's cry out and praise him in the true Palm Sunday way that would have made Jesus laugh and celebrate and declare, Hosanna, you are my king. You are my king. Let's stand and let's declare that.